All right, let's go James chapter 1. James chapter 1, if you don't have a Bible, we will have the text up on the screens behind me in just a little bit. Uh, we also have some physical Bibles kind of scattered around the room, little racks beneath the seats. If you don't own a Bible of your very own, we would invite you to take that physical one home. The reason for that is incredibly simple. I say it every week, but I say it every week uh, for the purpose of drilling it down into people's heads. All right, uh, we believe that God uses his word for all kinds of important things, but chief among those really awesome important things is that he uses it to reveal himself to his people. We want you to know God. We want everything in and about and around your life to be shaped by knowing him, filtered through the lens of knowing him, defined by knowing him. And if the scriptures are what he uses to do that in you, like do the little logic problem in your head, like put your nose in the scriptures, he'll use it for his purposes. Uh, and so uh, if you don't have a Bible of your very own, take that physical one home. It'll be the best part of my day. It's Super Bowl Sunday, and I will still call the you taking the Bible home to read it a victory. All right. Um, I'm going to... I'm going to eat till I make myself sick later, okay? It's just, I, is that too much about my personality? Okay, all right, I'm sorry. So we've made it now to uh, our fifth week of an effort uh, to walk through the letter of James together, or the book of James together. James, if you didn't know, was a letter written by a dude named James, uh, the half-brother of Jesus, and it's written pretty early on in the timeline of the New Testament, or at least of the early church. Uh, God's people had been growing and, and seemingly flourishing, expanding rapidly uh, within the city of Jerusalem uh, for a few years even after. Jesus ascended into heaven and left everybody else in charge. All right? it's, a, it's a kind of a cool story, and you can point to all kinds of really awesome things that were happening. Uh, the gospel was going forward powerfully, a bunch of new people were coming to know the Lord, and the church was expanding rapidly. In a lot of good ways, things were really, 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 really good, except for one tiny thing. Jesus told them not to stay there. He told them to, make, to be his witnesses of, among all nations, and a few years later, they're just still hanging out in Jerusalem. And so that's a problem, right? And so they hadn't really done the thing that Jesus had actually told them to do yet. And so through the raging persecution of a Pharisee named Saul, um, God scatters the church out of Jerusalem, and they end up in all the places that they end up, right? Most of the Christians literally fled the city in order to escape. We're told in the book of Acts that everybody fled except for the apostles. So it's chaos right now. And they're starting to settle into these new places, establish a life for themselves in these new places. But chaos is a good word. People were uprooted from their homes. Many of them were separated from their families and maybe their livelihoods. Work from home wasn't a thing then. You couldn't telecommute. Right? And so chaos is the word. And you would think that that would be the end of things for the church, right? You would think that that would be some kind of death blow to what God was building there, uh, that they wouldn't be able to get over such a massive hurdle. But instead, we're told that it strengthened the church. We're told that they actually got better and stronger because of it. And the, and the reason for that is because they were actually doing what Jesus told them to do. Like, it, God just kind of works that way. But now you've got a bunch of people scattered all over the place and you've got Jewish background Christians beginning to share the gospel with Gentiles, all the non-Jews around them, and those Gentiles are coming to salvation and that's an incredible thing. But at the very same time, it also means that you've got very disparate cultures clashing together and it also means that you've got varying levels of experience with persecution and poverty. And it also means that you've got incredibly divergent understandings of how your life can be pleasing to God. Sparks fly when you have all, all those things. So James writes this letter into a whirlwind 
of cultural debate within the larger church, a debate that's largely over uh, defining who and what God's people are and do. All right, that's kind of the debate that's swirling around. But, but James opens up this letter by addressing what he sees as the elephant in the room, the persecution that most of his audience has lived through recently. All right? The trials in their life, the very real trials that his audience has had to face. And it's a hard, it's like it's really hard to pay attention to, to good things that you're supposed to be growing in, everyday stuff, when your world has either just fallen apart, just recently exploded, or you can reasonably ex- like assume that your world's gonna explode again in a moment. Like that's a hard thing to go, okay, let me focus on this instead. And so James tells them, James tells them that for the Christian, trials hit different. They don't, they don't affect us in the same way. It's not that trials and hardships or even literal persecution in James's audience, it's not like it's somehow a non-issue. There are some in our world who have tried to accuse James in his writing here of calling his audience to just ignore the bad stuff going on in their life, but that's not at all what James is talking about. No, what he says is that the Christian comes to the table with an eternal perspective on the things in their life. And because of that eternal perspective, the temporary stuff just doesn't seem to affect them the way that it affects everybody else. But even beyond that, the temporary stuff, yes, even trials, yes, even persecution, it can actually be categorized, classified as the fullness of joy because those trials are leveraged by God towards other better good things. And so we've spent the last several installments now kind of in the book of James kind of walking through this larger theme of trials and and we got to get into it one more time this morning. So you ready to do that? Verse 12. James chapter 1 verse 12. James says this, blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. All right, so James says, James says that that someone is considered to be blessed, and the word he uses is blessed, all right? They're considered to be blessed when they remain steadfast under trials. That the person who stands tall and resolute as their world has fallen apart, it is correct and right and good to call that person blessed. How are we doing about that? You might go, yeah, sign me up. I know it's been like a month or so since we talked about it, but for those of you who have been keeping up with your James homework, you will remember that it hasn't been very long since James attached the words steadfast and trials together. In fact, it was only eight sentences ago. Back in verse 3, he said that the testing of your faith that comes through trials produces steadfastness it creates it gives birth to it we would say it it creates a a staying power that that all of the non-trially moments in your life don't have the ability to to produce and so if we were to kind of smash these two ideas together verse 3 and verse 12 if we were to just smash them together real quick it would be this faith testing trials produce steadfastness and and that steadfastness is essentially necessary absolutely necessary for successfully facing down those trials. And what you think about who God is 
What you walked in the door here believing this morning about who God is and how you relate to him, it's going to directly affect how you heard what I just said. So I'll say it again. Make sure we're all defining our pathway correctly. Faith-testing trials produce steadfastness, and that steadfastness is necessary to survive the trial. Now, if, if you walked in here this morning believing that God cannot be trusted, that he is not worthy of your following and not worthy of your devotion, then you will hear verse 12 as God requiring something of you that you don't have. You'll hear it as a, as a catch-22, right? Uh, trials need steadfastness, but I can't get any steadfastness unless I'm already in the middle of a trial. So what do I do? Therefore, God expects too much of me. If, however, if you walked in the door this morning already believing that God is, well, the only one that you can actually put your trust in, that he's not only worthy of your following and worthy of your devotion, but he's also the only trustworthy source of every good thing that you need in your life, then you will hear verse 12 as God promising to provide the very thing you need in the middle of the dark moment. Those are two very different worldviews, right? See, according to James, steadfastness is necessary. Necessary is the word. It is necessary for standing the test of trials. And because God is not only infinitely smart, but also infinitely good, he has actually built the world to work in such a way that the very thing his people would need in that circumstance is exactly what that circumstance produces in his people. I don't, I don't, I don't know if you've ever sat down and thought about this yourself, but our God's got it. Right? We don't normally think about that in the middle of the dark moment. It's probably healthier if we lock that idea in in the middle of the better moment. But our God's got it. He, he knows what we need and is providing what we need long before we are even aware that we need it. He's good like that. But lest we take this further down the road than James does, notice that he says that steadfastness Uh, produces some things as well. Back in verse 4, James pointed out that steadfastness creates maturity in God's people, that it rounds out our spiritual character. But here in verse 12, well, here in verse 12, he says that it also gets rewarded. That sounds fun. Who doesn't like rewards? It says, for he who has stood the test will receive what? The crown of life. Now, there are a couple of different words in the New Testament, uh, Greek words that often get translated into our English word crown. You got diadem and you got Stephanos, all right? I'm named after one of them. Ha <laughs> ha. All right. A diadem, a diadem is a jewel encrusted crown that you normally think of, picture on the top of a king's head, right? It's a sign of authority, it's a sign of power, it's a sign of, uh, of royalty. But a Stephanos, a Stephanos is different, all right? A Stephanos is a crown of victory. Right? Picture that laurel crown that you always picture on top of some dude that's wearing a toga. All right? but it's not just any old victory crown. A crown that would have been given for victory in battle or victory in some athletic competition. James uses the word Stephanos here. He says they will be rewarded. Those who remain steadfast will receive this victorious crown of life. In a world broken by sin, 
in a world that's destined for the death that it rightly deserves, Christians can categorize the trials in their life as the fullness of joy because God has designed those trials to produce steadfastness. But we also take the next step and say, and that steadfastness matures us and it creates a depth of character in us. But we can also take the next step and say, and then it is ultimately used by God to carry us through to the other side of those trials for the promise of eternal life forever untouched and unstained by sin, forever untouched and unstained by brokenness or by anything else that could ever fairly be called a trial ever again. Or we can say that in a much shorter way. God uses trials to give us an unimaginable depth of life that begins now and carries on into eternity. The Apostle Paul said something very, very similar to that in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. You don't have to turn there, I've got it here. It says, for this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. I don't don't know if you remember back all the way in week one of this series, I said then that there's there's a theological tribe out there uh, that likes to argue that James and Paul are on different gospel teams. They can't agree about stuff. In fact, they're teaching the exact opposite of stuff. Um, That tribe doesn't usually like us pointing out the fact that James and Paul sound a whole lot alike a lot of times. They keep saying the same stuff, actually. It doesn't make it any less true that they don't like it. It's just they don't like it. But it doesn't matter if you prefer the way Paul worded it or if you prefer the way James worded it. The proposition itself that God ordains and uses trials to prepare us for some better future thing, that proposition all on its face, that raises a massive question, right? Is God allowed to do that? And it's this question, it's, I mean, it, that question's probably been rolling around in the back of your head all the way since week two. Been buried in people's minds all the way since verse two. And we dressed it in partial form back then. We kind of danced around that idea a little bit, but now the question's screaming at us. Is God morally responsible for our trials? Well, James is ready to address it. Look at verse 13. He says, Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot be tempted by, with evil, and he himself tempts no one. All right, so... James anticipates the question that his detractors, all of his opponents, are, are going to come back with, their rebuttal. And he says, listen, I, listen, I know what you're thinking. I, I, I hear it before you even say it out loud. I know what you're thinking. But let's make sure we're all seeing things correctly here. While God is sovereign over the trials in our lives, while he has designed them and is leveraging them to produce good and necessary things in us, it is a step too far, too far to accuse God of temptation. And sitting here reading this in English, um, a lot of us will naturally go, well, well, yeah, of course. I mean, trials and, and, and temptation, those are two very different things. You can't just change categories like that. Except for the fact in the Greek, we haven't changed categories yet. Um, in case you don't remember, uh, all throughout chapter 1, we've, we've seen this word trials over and over and over and over and over and over again. Uh, the word trials has consistently been translated from the Greek word pirasmos, right? Everybody can feel like they've walked away from here this morning much smarter. Pirasmos, all right? It's a fun little word. 
And then all the way back in week two of the series, I, I pointed out back then that the King James uh, sometimes, or usually, always, I guess, uh, translates that word parasmos as temptation. Um, in some ways, it's good and right for the KJV to do so. That word used to have a family of meanings kind of layered into it that I, I don't honestly think that it has anymore. Uh, and so I pointed out at the time uh, that the word temptation, the English word temptation, is unhelpful in modern readings because it carries a layer of morality that James didn't mean in the first part of the chapter. James wasn't aiming at morality issues. When we hear that word temptation, that's always buried in there. We hear the word temptation and we immediately assume that it's some sort of enticement towards sin. But James has only, up to this point, been talking about hardships and trials in our lives that prove the genuineness of our faith. But that's not the case anymore. So we get to verse 13 here, and James uses what is essentially the exact same word he switches from the noun pirasmos to the verb pirazo. There you go. Now you got two Greek words today. Woo! Same word, different forms, actually. He switches to the verb, and English translators understand that now, well, he absolutely intends the morality level in what he's talking about. While he was only talking about bad stuff and trials and hardships in your life before, well, now he is talking about sin. And so it would be wrong to hear this as some sort of categorical shift. What we're actually dealing with here is an amplification of the same thing. James is saying that God can and does rightly introduce and leverage stress tests in our lives to move us and produce in us what he wants. We can fairly call those things trials, but it is wrong to assume that those stress tests turning into sin-shaped failure trace their responsibility back to him. That's not on him. Why? James says it's because anything that produces sin is outside of his character. He cannot be tempted with evil, and he has himself never tempted anyone. That's not the game he plays. So who's to blame then? If it's not God, who, who does have that in their lap? Well, you already know the answer, but James tells us explicitly in verse 14. He says, but each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own what? Desire. James says that the sin-bent brokenness in us, that, that, that is ultimately at fault for this, a brokenness that seizes the opportunity for sin, it grabs it with both hands, and it runs as fast as it can in the other direction. That's at fault. And if you feel like you've heard that logic before, it's because you have. It's Romans 7, almost verbatim. Uh, I got it again here. All right, Romans 7, Paul says this. What then shall we say? That the law is sin? By no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had, had not said, you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. Verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. 
For sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin, producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. I don't know, guys. It's kind of hard to keep arguing that James and Paul are on the wrong team. They keep saying a lot of the exact same stuff. Paul is talking about the law. And James is talking about trials. So they are talking about slightly different things. But both of them, both of them point to our own hearts and say, hey, this is what happens when you give our sin-bent hearts good things. We wreck it. We wreck it. We twist it. We corrupt it. We claim it for our own self-serving purposes. James says that that the responsibility of sin-shaped failure belongs to us, never God, because our own sin-bent desires grab a hold of that opportunity and and cling to that opportunity for sin and run off into more sinfulness. You know why a fish will bite a lure? Because it looks like something they want to eat, right? No fisherman in all of human history has ever caught a fish because they dropped a moral treatise in the water of how that fish's life would be better if it took the bait. That's not how fishing works. They dropped a bug in there, and that bug looked tasty. They dropped a shiny metal object in there, and that shiny metal object looked tasty, and then they attacked it. They wanted it, they pursued it, and they attacked it. Fish attacks the bait because it looks appealing to them. Our hearts do the exact same thing. We're no different. Because of the bent in us to see sin as good, we attack that sin, fully convinced of the pleasure that is found there. We want it. We go get it. It's the thing we desperately desire and cling to and we gladly submit to its further bending of us. James spells out that bending submission in the next verse, in verse 15. He says, Then desire, when it is conceived, gives birth to sin. And sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Or to repeat Paul's words from just a moment ago, For sin, seizing the opportunity through the commandment, deceived me, and through it killed me. James says that the end of our sin is always death. We may like to think that we've got more control over it than that. We may like to pretend that we can manage it better than the last time. But James says that the end of our sin is always death. And tragically, there's a pathway to get there from the trials in our lives. Our sin-bent hearts take that trial. When we twist that trial, we cling to selfishness within inside that trial. Sin is birthed, and death follows shortly after. The line between trials and temptations is actually a very, very fine one much smaller than we like to believe it is. And the unavoidable reality is that our sinful hearts play the most massive role in how we walk that line. But we also have two 
other important realities at our disposal. We also have the finished work of Jesus to pay the sin debt of our sin brokenness. And we also have the promise of God to continue unbending our brokenness until he finally brings us home. We rest in both of those two realities. If if you're here this morning and you're not a follower of Jesus yet, the, the Bible makes it pretty clear, crystal clear, that left to our own devices, we are not only incapable of cleaning ourselves up, but we would never even consider it to be a good thing. It's not what we want. We instead want the lure. Listen, maybe you walked in here today and you either, you either think you still have control over the chaos in your life or uh, what's probably more likely, someone else is responsible for the chaos in your life. But according to James, trials are meant to push you towards a savior. It's what they're designed to do. And, and it's the I got it parts of you, the just get out of my way long enough and I'll get there myself parts of you that prove just how desperately you need that savior you don't know any better the bible teaches that all people everywhere by default are separated relationally from god because of uh, our sin we lovingly and willingly cling to that which is opposed to him in fact we find our greatest pleasure in it our greatest delight precisely because it exalts ourselves instead of him we're all fundamentally selfish creatures because of that core level sin-shaped rebellion in each and every one of us, in each and every one of our hearts, we are owed the right and just punishment for that rebellion. The Bible calls that punishment hell. And I know lately you know, self-proclaimed transgressive artists like to flirt around with that idea as if you know, it could potentially be a good thing for some folks. The Bible describes hell as the, the active and forever justice of a perfectly holy God on those who have tried to rob him of his glory. Like, Good luck with that. But the Bible also teaches, it also teaches that that this infinitely holy, infinitely just God is equally full of infinite mercy and infinite love. He is all of these things that even when we are dead in our trespasses and sin, God makes us alive again through Christ by his grace. They steps in to rescue those who revile him and rage against him. How? He does it through Jesus. The eternal son of God sent by the father. He put on flesh and he dwelt among us. He lived a sinless life that neither you nor I are capable of living. He died on the cross as an innocent substitute to make full and final payment for your sin. He was raised again from the dead as a vindication of his own perfect and sufficient righteousness. And now as the king who conquered sin and death, he calls on you to lay down your rebellion and lay down your rage and respond to him in submission, in repentance and faith, to turn away from your sin and to turn to him as Savior and Lord. And you can do that today. I'd love to be helpful to you. We can talk. After we're done here, let's, let's meet up. What, what about those of us, though, who, who are already followers of Jesus? How can, how can we respond to God's word this morning, huh? Well, this is where we lean into not only what he has already done on our behalf, but also his present and continual work to unbend us. If our hearts are susceptible by, you know, to luring and enticement, what, what then is the solution for avoiding those things? Like, I don't know about you, but I want to bite less lures. How do, how do we get better at that? 
And James has already given us the answer. Steadfastness. So we ask God for wisdom, like he told us a few weeks ago, in the full confidence of faith in who he is. And we allow him to use the trials in our lives to produce in us all the things in us that he needs to produce in us. And even as he produces those good things, those good things actually change the equation of what our hearts delight in and chase after and cling to. They tip the scales towards delighting in him instead of what's naturally in me. I don't know about you, but I want more of that. And rather than running in the opposite direction with our sin, embracing and reveling in our sin, we continue to build strength in our legs to stand the test. And even better, we begin to yearn instead for that victorious crown of life. It's like a sweeter deal. We long instead for the day when we will be forever untouched and unstained by brokenness and forever untouched and unstained by anything that might ever be considered a trial ever again. Listen, maybe you're here this morning and you need to respond in some other kind of way. Maybe that's by formally joining our church family or maybe it's time to be obedient to Jesus and his command to, to be baptized or maybe it's time to publicly say yes to some call he's placed on you to take the gospel somewhere not named Nashua. I don't know what that is, but... I'm going to pray and we're going to sing and I'd love to be helpful to you. So however God's word is calling you to respond this morning, let's all respond together right now. Father, you get to us. Thank you for the scriptures. Thank you for the book of James. Thank you for being a God who not only can use the most broken parts of the world and the most broken parts in me, Thank you that you can use them for your glory and yet somehow never be stained by them yourself. Makes you worthy of praise. Makes you worthy of love and adoration. God, I want that crown of life. I want the steadfastness even if the trial is how you bring it to me. Give me strength. I am insufficient for the task, but you have, you have promised to carry me through, so give me. Father, for those in here who don't know you yet, would you make yourself known in this moment? Cause us to not want the lure so much but rather love you instead. Change our hearts. Call people into your kingdom this morning. We love you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.